Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. There's plenty to celebrate in March and Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Softweb Radio. I'm your host today, Steve Balistrieri. Um, software radio on time on target. Uh, we always try to bring you the best of what's going on out there in the world. And today we have a very special guest with us, Justin Adi, who just finished uh, a book. It's called Eagle Down, the last special forces fighting in the forever war. It was a absolutely fantastic read. It was a little concerning, a little upsetting, I guess you could say as a former special forces guy. And we're going to get into the, the reasons for all that, but Jess uh, was the Wall Street Journal's uh, person on the ground, I guess you could say, their bureau chief in, in Afghanistan for about four years. <clears throat> Excuse me. So she definitely spent her time there. She was embedded with the Afghan SF guys, with the American SF guys. She has a fantastic story to tell. We're going to get into that in her book, but before we do any of that, 
we want to welcome her to the podcast. Jess, thank you for taking the time, I should say this evening, because you're joining us from the beautiful country of South Africa today. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it, it, it is our pleasure. And I, I just wanted to ask you real quick, um, you know, uh, I know prior to going to Afghanistan, you spent some time in Libya during the, you know, the fall of Gaddafi and the civil war there. Was it a big difference from you, uh, for you, I should say? I, I know uh, Libya was your first war that you covered. Was it a big difference going from, let's say, Libya to Afghanistan? For me, it was for me, it was a huge difference. Um, I mean, not just on a personal level, because uh, one thing is when you've never been in a war before to find yourself in a war for the first time, that causes quite a big um, sort of personal development. Uh, but the Libyan war when, in 2011, when I was there, was completely chaotic. Uh, you didn't know uh, who controlled what. The country was split into an insert where you had Gaddafi's forces fighting off a very sort of ragtag alliance of, of different Libyan militias. In Afghanistan, when I got there for the first time, which was in 2012, um, it was it felt like a war that had been set set in for a long time. Uh, you know, everybody knew where they stood. You had every country in the world, it felt like, uh, with a stake, uh, with a sort of role on the stage. And you knew, um, you know, this road is under this, this control, the government has this, the Taliban has that. And so it felt a lot more organized and it felt a lot safer as well oh it did yeah because i know you know at that time in libya and, and again i'm bouncing back and forth but it seemed like as you said very chaotic and they probably didn't have um any safe i, I don't want to say safety nets but like where you know journalists were probably um kind of embedded more with uh, the war in afghanistan where Probably in Libya, you guys were left to fend for yourselves. Yeah, we were. I mean, we were totally on our own. I mean, in in Libya, we just we didn't have a bureau. Uh, nobody had a bureau. Journalists just worked out of one of a couple of hotels in town. Uh, there was almost no supervision and very little security in terms of. You know, I was with Reuters at the time, and they had one security guy in Tripoli for a huge number of reporters, photographers, TV people. Um, so you were very much left on your own. It was very risky, uh, you know, and it was and you had a lot of freedom. I mean, you could jump in a cab and go, you know, to Misrata, which is another town like two hours away. Uh, so it was it was pretty chaotic. But I mean, even in Afghanistan, we were very much left to operate on our own. Um, unlike sort of big, uh, I don't know, diplomatic missions or, or um, companies as, as a journalist, you are basically the person there. You're on your own. Uh, I lived in a shared house with the journalist that worked for the Washington Post and somebody else that rented a room from us. And uh, I was, you know, free to make up my day as as I wanted to do. And um, if I wanted, to, the only the only sort of regulations that we had were if you were going to leave the city of Kabul, uh, you had to plan the trip with our security advisor and get it signed off at headquarters. Uh, and, and the idea was that the story had to be uh, considered worth whatever risk you were taking in any trip outside of Kabul towards the end especially was considered high risk um but you came up with your own security plan pretty much you know you think you explained to them how you were going to make sure that you made it there and back in one piece interesting you know in reading the book I think I came away with probably 
the same perspective that a lot of uh, former military, especially special forces guys, probably have. And to me, the biggest question of this book is, why are American special forces guys still in Afghanistan? And what are they really doing? Because, you know, we tend to think of these guys, they have a plan and they're going to go in and uh, they're, they're going to do their mission, do their job, I guess you could say. But in the book, it's so confusing. And to me, that was like, it was very eye-opening. To me, uh, it seemed especially uh, in the in the earlier years, sort of 2015 onwards, you had the Obama administration saying that the war was over. They had delivered on this campaign pledge. There were fewer than 10,000 troops. They called it a training mission instead of a combat mission. And it seemed to me that the focus was very much to make it look like the U.S. was no longer at war. And at the same time, you had uh, the reality on the ground, which was a fast declining security situation with the Afghan uh, government forces unable to hold on to major uh, population centers on their own. And so you had to fight, figure out how to back them up. And obviously the answer came in the form of special operations because because they're special operations, you don't have to embed journalists with them. You don't have to really account for what they're doing. You just sort of say, well, it's a terrorism mission or it's a training mission. And that's that. And you don't really know what's going on. And uh, unfortunately, unless you're somebody who's, you know, maybe a journalist that's been working there for a long time or following the conflict very closely, the average person doesn't really have any idea what U.S. troops are actually doing or why. Uh, because it's no longer talked about. Um, and to me, it seems that, that their sort of principal role has been to keep the Afghanistan out of the headlines, to prevent the losses of major population centers and to sort of keep the two sides, the government and the Taliban and insurgent side, sort of fairly balanced on the battlefield. The idea, obviously, is so that at this point, so that you can support peace talks. But uh, back then, there weren't even peace talks uh, going on. And... Um, so that that's what brought me to to decide to write the book because I thought it was important there should be some kind of discussion over the way special operations were being used, and you know whether there was any kind of long term strategy. Yeah, and and you know to me that was the most disturbing part of the book is, you know, uh, we put these guys in harm's way, and I say we as a country, I mean we we send them there. They're they're in a you know a. a provincial capital that's under attack by the Taliban. These guys are in pretty pitched combat. They have wounded troops. They have air assets all around them, and they're not allowed to use them. And uh, that, to me, was I, it was shocking. I, I'll, I'll admit it. Uh, I was under the impression that right up until today, these guys had, you know, everything at their disposal, and they were able to use it. And, of course, in the book, it comes out that they weren't, and it may have, you know, contributed to some guys getting hurt. Yeah, I think that was the feeling, especially um, earlier on before uh, the Trump administration came in. There were extremely strict rules on what uh, what kind of support these troops could have. So unless they were sort of, you know, on the brink of, of total disaster, uh, they wouldn't get the air support. And the idea or the logic in Washington, which, you know, always makes a lot more sense when you're in Washington and it's sort of all neatly organized. You need to say, well, you know, you have to limit support because 
otherwise the Afghans are never going to do it on their own. Uh, whereas the reality is that nothing really that Washington is going to do is going to change um, how willing the Afghan forces are or how capable really they are to 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 provide support in a particular operation. So these guys were getting uh, put in very dangerous situations without the support that they would normally get. Um, aside from that, I mean, another thing that was common was because the uh, administration had planned to pull all troops out and because they supposedly weren't in combat anymore, they didn't have uh, some of the resources that they would usually have, uh, you know, like um, like the ability to drop um, supplies with a GPS guided supplies, right? So they would just push things out of an airplane and they would land wherever and then they had to go find them in the middle of uh, you know, a Taliban-controlled village rather than be able to guide them to the exact place where they were. So there were other other factors that further exposed them. When the Trump administration came in, they did relax some of the some of the restrictions, um, which which brought some relief, some relief, and of course, then tightened them up again once the deal was signed. Yeah, and uh, you you mentioned in the book that the Afghan you know special operations guys that the U.S. trained, they're really spread awfully awfully thin and that was a major issue and it, it was an issue with those guys in in fact a couple of times that you know it seemed like they uh they were i don't want to say losing their will to fight but it, they were getting very frustrated themselves over this yeah i mean the afghan commanders um i mean even more than i mean than uh than police and the army forces i mean they come under a lot of criticism because they're seen as not wanting, they don't want to fight or they give up or along the way. But what you have to remember is that unlike, uh, you know, American troops who can cycle in and out every uh, six months or, or, or however long, these guys are stuck for the long haul. You know, we embedded with commanders that had been commanders pretty much in the same position for 10 years. You know, and they were incredibly experienced, incredibly smart, uh, perceptive guys who were alive by miracle and most of the people they had started out with were no longer alive. Uh, and, you know, they're in the same position where they're being sent out to basically rescue, you know, villages and district centers from the Taliban to make it look like the, that the government isn't losing. Um, and they're seeing the same places fall over and over again, and they're being sent back to the same places and they can go and drive the Taliban out. But the problem is there's no plan after that to ensure the place doesn't fall back under um, insurgent control. So it's very demoralizing for them. And at a certain point, you know, their own sense of survival has to kick in. The other thing that is also important to remember is that they don't have any nice benefit system waiting for them when they get back. Or if they die, you know, nobody's going to look after their family. If they get wounded, they're pretty much left on their own. Uh, or anyone, or, you know, they can be helped out by contacts that they might have. But chances are, you know, that's it's ruinous for them. So you can understand why they're reluctant to, to put themselves on the line. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, when you're looking at these Afghan commandos, I mean, it seems like they're the best fighting force that the Afghans have, but there's just not enough of them. And, you know, we're always talking about the Afghans standing on their own, but it seems like once the U.S. does pull out, these guys are going to be really hard pressed to hold on to a lot of their areas because it seems like they're the firemen going from one hotspot to another. Yeah, I mean, they are exactly like firemen. And the problem is it takes a lot of time to build, a, a, you know, a commando. 
and while they, the government has tried to increase the production of them, uh, you know, the quality isn't going to be as good because they won't have had as much training. Uh, in earlier years, they worked, the commanders worked very closely with U.S. Special Forces. Obviously, as the number of U.S. Special Forces has gone down, so has that level of interaction, which also um, reduces the amount of training that they have. So you have more commanders which are less trained acting as firemen. Um, it's not it's not a sustainable situation, or at least it's not a situation that's going to turn around things on the battlefield in the way that is hoped. Uh, and once the U.S. leaves, you know they're going to leave not just with with the troops, but the um, the air support they provide, the transport support. You know, some the Afghans rely on the U.S. to be able to sort of ferry fighters into the battlefield, along with providing air support and intelligence support. So all of that will go. Um, and and these guys, I mean, likely to have limited loyalty to the the Kabul administration, which is uh, seen to be horribly corrupt, and their own military leadership, which is also seen to be pretty corrupt, where they steal food, uniforms, uh, vacation time, that sort of thing. So rather than seeing perhaps them vanish, you might see uh, fighters gravitate towards who they see as their uh, natural leader, whether it's by tribal association or ethnicity or some other thing. We're, we're speaking today with Justin Ali, the uh, author of Eagle Down, the last special forces fighting in the forever war here on Software Radio. And, and just uh, there was a couple of very compelling characters that all of the characters were compelling, but a couple of them I wanted to mention because I think we could probably spend days and days talking about everybody that's in the book, but Obviously, Hutch was a, a focal point in the book. And um, how difficult was it to get him to open open up to you and, <laughs> and talk about what actually went down, especially in the, the part of the mission that went bad during the retaking of one of the provincial capitals? Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, the way that I got to know Hutch was through a different story uh, that I was researching. Um, I had heard his name uh sort of in these uh circles of contractors in in Kabul so I knew I knew who he was uh but I was investigating a story about a former green beret who was raising or trying to raise an anti-islamic state uh militia in the east and that effort had gone horribly wrong um they had ended up decapitating these ISIS fighters and putting their heads on piles of rocks uh it was very gruesome he got into lots of trouble but he claimed to have support from american special forces and so and the person he claimed supported him was Hutch. So I reached out to Hutch and I said, you know, uh, would you like to explain why you guys have been supporting a militia that decapitates people and puts their heads on on rocks? And he was very um, worried that another very negative story would come out uh, about U.S. Special Forces and that, you know, soon after the bombing of the MSF hospital. Um, and so that's how I initially got to speak to him Um and he he clarified some of the details of that story. So uh, as it turned out, the guy had been uh, vastly overstating the amount of support that he had from the U.S. military. Um, and uh, I, I was always fascinated by Hutch's story because um, I we had heard so much about everybody else involved in that incident, but no one had ever heard from the soldiers who were involved. And I was really interested to know his viewpoint and how you know how he. I guess lived with what had happened and how he viewed it, and uh, and over over the years, as I got to know more Green Berets that had fought at that time and convinced a critical mass of them to uh, 
participate in the book, uh, I asked him if he would if he would do it, and um, and and he agreed. Uh, and I think you know it just it I think the the thing that soldiers most uh, worry about when they speak to journalists is that journalists are going to have an agenda, um, or that they have some kind of some mot- motivation for it. And for for me, I really just wanted to tell um, part a story or tell part of the Afghan war that I felt wasn't being represented anymore in the news because journalists no longer had access to special operations and the government was no longer really saying what they were doing and they did have this critical part and so I wanted to do as be as fair and balanced as possible and that was and I, and I guess that finally convinced convinced the guys to to participate right and during this one operation I believe the way it's pronounced Kunduz uh, I think it is uh, the operation there. Uh, what happened was the Afghan commandos had come under fire. Um, they had identified a, a, a target for air for an airstrike, and there was a mistake made, and the target ended up being a hospital with uh, doctors without borders, and and it went horribly wrong. But, you know, um, rather than trying to, it seemed like rather than trying to find out what had happened and interviewing the soldiers, it seemed like the higher-ups in Kabul immediately declared it a war crime and, you know, went after Hutch and, uh, you know, they, they kept asking him, and you mentioned it in the book, that you want to change your story? Are you And they were accusing him basically of lying. And it was before even all the events had come out. And then later on, after the fact that he was proven correct, but it was still a horrible mistake. And one of the, that was one of the more compelling parts of the book, because in it, you're, you're not only getting his perspective as you talk to him, but his wife in back in the States, you know, he's talking to her on the phone and she's like, well, they're already calling it a war crime here. And uh, it was just a, a terrible terrible incident and no one came out on top on that one no no it wasn't and uh, i think that was one of the one of the one of the incidents that did breed a certain amount of resentment amongst the ranks of sort of the of soldiers on the ground at hutch's level and below because they felt that they'd been thrown under a bus because you had you know that this major city falls to the Taliban. You've got pictures on Twitter of the Taliban sort of partying in the middle of Kunduz and you send in these guys who've never been to Kunduz before on this very dangerous mission to rescue the city. And then uh, when something goes wrong, you then uh, act like they are war criminals and you don't take any responsibility for the fact that you have come up with a with a plan to leave Afghanistan that's not sustainable because the problem was was the dynamic that the Americans had withdrawn support from Afghan forces and Afghan forces were not ready to hold on to the to the territory that they were supposed to hold on and the U.S. wasn't prepared to let it go. Um, you know, another way that could have turned out was the U.S. could have said, okay, they lost Kunduz, we're going to step back because, as we said, we're no longer involved in this war and things would have turned out differently. But they weren't prepared to both let go of the war and, um, and, and the fighting. Yeah, and that's... Uh... You know, because at that point, like 2014, 2015, you know, the government is telling us, you know, we're not at war anymore in Afghanistan. And 
uh, there's the famous saying at that time was there's no boots on the ground. I remember hearing that quite often in the news, but there were boots on the ground and it seemed like um, without, well, I'll, I'll just call it like I see it. It seemed like that uh, the higher ups in Kabul were setting these special forces, uh, A-teams up to fail. Yeah, I think they were, I mean, or to fail, or I mean, I think, I think there were a lot of, a lot of the missions that they did, and especially sort of later on, if you look towards what was going on in later years, I mean, they did, the, the, the missions did succeed in the short term. I mean, even in Kunduz, even with the disastrous bombing of the hospital, they did get the city back under Afghan government control. Uh, there still was very little information out about the role that the U.S. had actually had. And the whole aim of keeping this secret was to make it look like the Afghan government had done it, but mostly by themselves. And so from that perspective, I mean, you could say the missions had succeeded, but they hadn't, they, there was no long-term success built into it because there was no plan to avoid losing the city again and having to send the ODAs back in uh, over and over again to the same places. Right. And, you know, that, as you mentioned earlier, um, you mentioned that, um, there was some hard feelings between some of the soldiers and, you know, either the government or their military headquarters. And, you know, one of the, the quotes that uh, I wrote down from the book, because, I mean, I thought it was quite telling and where, you know, one of the troops said, we don't know what our goals are because they keep changing all the time. You don't know what we're supposed to be doing, yet you keep sending us out on crazy missions where we could all die for no reason. And that isn't something you would normally hear from SF troops when they're talking to their commanders. Right. Yeah. And that, um, and that soldier uh, ends up uh, stepping on a mine in Sangin during an operation whose purpose is not really clear. I mean, uh, you know, why the U.S. was out on a clearing operation in Sangin when they weren't supposed to be at war anymore, um, you know, is a, is a question. And that's how it was. As as things worsened in Afghanistan, the rules changed. The rules that were sort of being made in Washington changed. And as they were handed down, the soldiers weren't really given any explanation. For them, it was more like, OK, from not going out at all, now they're being told that they have to go out, uh, you know, every week and do an operation, um, which is without any bigger goal other than to just do an operation and clear something or, or, or yeah. So I think it was very confusing for them. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. 
BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Yeah, and for somebody who spent so much time in Afghanistan, I believe it was like four years of, of your life that you spent there. You know, one of the things that I've always been fascinated by and I wanted to ask you that just your your personal opinion on this, having been there, you know, um, for so many years, the U.S. changed their mission to kind of a nation building uh, type of thing where it seemed like Afghanistan has always been a tribal society. Do you see just this is just your personal opinion. Do you see this changing uh, for the Afghans, I mean, are they actually going to pull together as a country, or is this going to remain a tribal society for years to come? You think? I mean, I think when you know when you when you're there, you do see, for example, the influence left by the Soviets, right? Like there's older Afghans that speak Russian and have you know were sent to universities in Russia, and, and you you see that kind of influence. And the same with the U.S. After 20 years of the U.S. being there, you see a lot of U.S. influence that has become part of Afghan uh, society in, uh, you know, in major cities. I mean, in Kabul, for example, for me, it was especially going back, uh, you know, the last time in 2019, you know, there's cafes where, you know, men and women are sitting together. Uh, you have one or two, I guess you could say nightclubs where they can go listen to music and mix together. And there's absolutely no foreigners involved in this. This is just an Afghan uh, Afghan thing. And so, I think there are a lot of Western values that have that have filtered into into society, uh, but in the in the longer run, I mean, there's no way that the U.S. can build a country uh, in its in its own image or in any image. I mean, Afghanistan has a very long history with a lot of traditions. It's a very um, very diverse uh, diverse country, and so 
I mean, there's nothing they can do. The U.S. can do to to decide how they should how they should live. And the problem is, when the U.S. leaves, the Afghans are going to have to figure out how to balance all of these influences amongst themselves. Uh, you know, because you have in the south or in the east very conservative, uh, very conservative tribal societies that you know their way of living. It's it's close to what we imagine the Taliban influence being. You know, women in burqas and not going out and that's something that's native and it's not necessarily even a religious thing. That's more of a tribal thing. Whereas in cities over decades, you've seen liberal um, influences come and go. And so they're going to have to balance that somehow without the U S uh, yeah. So, you know, um, and, and looking at Afghanistan as, as a whole, um, you know, the, things have changed obviously several times since uh, our first troops hit the ground uh, in 2001. And one of them was the um, the introduction of ISIS into the country and the Islamic State. And, you know, we kind of, in the United States here, most of the people kind of lump ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban all into uh, a big cauldron and like they're all the same. But they're really not. And, you know, they're kind of like the interlopers because they've got some uh, their support from former Taliban members. What's it the feeling with the Afghan government and the Taliban for, you know, for what you can glean from your time there about how they feel about ISIS? I mean, I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of confusion and uncertainty over what ISIS really means in Afghanistan. Um, the links between ISIS headquarters, say, in Iraq, Syria, are um, are unclear. I mean, there are sort of isolated reports of money uh, passing uh, from one group to the other, a certain amount of training, um, some maybe a little some ideology, but generally there's not a very clear link. And when you see uh, one of the troubling things when you're looking at the Afghan war is that you see a lot of attacks or high profile attacks blamed on ISIS and you don't really have any claim from ISIS other than, you know, a day later ISIS in Syria puts out a statement. There's no real evidence that ISIS actually had a role. Uh, and so um, so we don't really know a lot about about them there, but there was an ISIS spokesman. Um, he, there was a group initially formed out of the Pakistani Taliban. Uh, the spokesman was killed in a U.S. drone strike within a month or so of becoming the spokesman, and no one's really heard from the Afghan group since. So there's not really been any reliable journalist interviews with them directly, and so we just don't know. Uh, and one one of the examples is with the recent spate of attacks that you've seen in Kabul now. I mean, so many different groups have an interest in destabilizing uh, Kabul, making it look like it's chaos. So when you're looking at an attack and you're blaming it on ISIS, it might well be some disgruntled government official or some warlord or something. I mean, there's never, you can never really be sure unless you investigate each specific attack, whether it really was carried out by the person who claimed it. And the Afghan government uh, has had an interest in playing up ISIS in the country because that keeps the Americans interested. And to a certain extent, you know, perhaps the Americans have also had an interest in making it seem like ISIS is this very defined entity because then it gives you a very defined reason for staying. Right. And that was one of the comments that uh, President Biden made recently where he was like, the counterterrorism mission will continue. But it's kind of, 
it's kind of a murky thing because who's you know who, what missions are going to go on there but we i guess that's a topic for a different time but as a woman how difficult was it working being embedded with the afghan you know commandos was was there any pushback on there or did they welcome you I mean, for me, it was for me, the reporting that I did was possible because I had an excellent Afghan colleague, uh, Habib Khan Tatakhir, who I would do these embeds with. And uh, he was a, a Pashtun guy. Uh, he, he looked like a Talib, uh, you know, long beard, long hair, uh, but he was quite a hippie at heart. And, uh, you know, he was basically keeping me safe there. Uh, he would tell me when a situation was good or bad, uh, you know, he'd be able to read the room for me he was able to get access from the ministry of defense and because you had there was actually quite a bureaucratic process to embed with afghan forces which uh you know because they were built in in the image of american forces you'd have all these forms to fill out so he was very good at navigating the, the ministry of defense um and so it was possible that way i mean afghan commanders Afghan men in general, um, you know, they don't see Western women quite like Afghan women. They sort of see them as a, as a sort of third gender almost. Um, and so you do get access. People will talk to you. Uh, you know, sometimes they don't even want to talk to you because they're curious and they maybe haven't seen a woman for months or years or who knows how long. And so, uh, so you do. Obviously, there are there are other risks as a woman. So you don't really want to be walking around a commander base by yourself uh you know um but and have, uh, having your guide there the way you described him in the book he he seemed like he was uh i'm not say threatening but he he would uh kind of deter anyone from taking liberties with you well yeah i mean the, I, I don't want it to sound like i don't not appreciative of the hospitality that we received because you know a lot of the afghan commanders especially you know we would we would be attached to uh you know like a some captain level sort of guy and they would they would really be very uh hospitable they would you know arrange all of our meals and take us out on you know uh patrols and give us the you know full view of what what was going on they were very interesting people so um so i i mean i, th I think it was he just kind of helped me i guess uh fit in and he helped mm -hmm. the commanders open up and he you know kept me out of trouble when i was there you know saying well no, don't go down that hallway or, you know, you know, that sort of thing. Right. Right. Now, did you wear the uh, traditional woman's garb over there? Yeah. I mean, if even when I was with the Afghan, uh, you know, embedded with the Afghan soldiers, I always wore uh, an abaya, which is like a long black uh, cloak. Uh, mm -hmm. It's popular in sort of Saudi Arabia and, uh, and um which over over my clothes and I would wear an Afghan tunic underneath uh, and then obviously a headscarf. Uh, if we were going out and sort of trying to report from, you know, if we were going to sort of see an Afghan militia out in the middle of nowhere or or do reporting in very remote areas, then I would just, I would wear an Afghan tunic nearby and a burqa over it because once you're under a burqa, uh, you know, people tend not to bother you or notice you. And so that was my way of getting around places that were more dangerous. Did you ever feel in danger working uh, over there at different times? Oh, I mean, yeah, there were there were a lot of times where uh, where we would we would felt in danger. Um, you know, 
you were only as we we relied a lot on local uh, sort of contacts and fixtures and so if you're going somewhere very remote like Kunar and you're going in the car and you're driving in a you know in your Toyota Corolla you know you're hoping that you don't get stopped at a checkpoint or a Taliban checkpoint uh you know we we've driven into a couple of ambushes uh you know one of them our car was damaged um because we drove into um or rather the uh insurgents in the in the mountaintops opened fire down on the road of where we were uh not not firing at us but at a police convoy that happened to pass us um and so we had like a flat tire and and stuff from that uh and and broken engine so we broke down in Sarobi which is a very insecure area and we obviously had nobody coming to get us so we had to take the Toyota to lo like a local garage and I just sat there in my burka for hours you know hoping that no one would wonder who we were um and so yeah there were there were lots of times when when it felt insecure and you were really it was really just down to luck because other journalists over the years that I was there would be doing sort of something similar and and it would go wrong um so you know, part of it is planning. You try and plan for for every outcome. You try and make sure you have all the information on the road that you're traveling on, and that you know your local contacts. You know, whether it's the local provincial district governor or whatever, uh, or you know, local journalists or something helping you. Uh, you know that they're reliable, and, and they can be trusted not to sort of sell you to to the enemy. I suppose. Yeah, and uh, you know, speaking about the the U.S. special forces guys in in the book. Um, was there any pushback on, I'd say, from like the Special Operations Command for them not to cooperate with it? Uh, I mean, in, it was really a sort of grassroots um, effort. Like when I uh, went to to sort of headquarters to ask for interviews with people like General Swindell, they were denied. Um, and so it was more a case of reaching out to people individually and then they would reach out to their public affairs person and I did have uh, an, an, an approval from public from the military public affairs which sort of said that um, you know that they were supposed to cooperate and help with my research and that they supported the publication of the book so I did have that kind of official stamp but I didn't get a lot of support from headquarters but I did at the at the lower level um at the lower level yes i mean public affairs guys would be like yeah sure you know talk to so and so and they would sit in on the interview and they wouldn't interfere uh generally um they were really supportive in that respect and, and one of the uh another really compelling part of the book you you talked at length about caleb um the special operator that lost both of his legs and you know, his story going through all of his, you know, struggles and and travails of learning to walk again and and all that. Have you been in contact with him since the book's been out? Oh, and how's sure. he doing? <laughs> I mean, he's he's good. He's uh, he he's found his calling in, in helping other people. So he's uh, he's teaching um, archery and. He's a really, really impressive guy because he's so um, thoughtful and so reflective on on things. And he knows um, he has a good way, I think, of viewing what happened to him and uh, and sort of coming to terms with it. He's got an amazing family. He's got two little girls who are amazing. Um, and he's very, you know, and he's, he's very open. And so he'll say, you know, he, he, yeah, I mean, I found it really, really good to work with him. And um and we do keep in touch. 
That's great. And his wife seemed like a very, very strong woman. Very strong woman. Very impressive woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how she how she managed. I mean, I have a, I've had have a, a baby myself now, and I don't know how any of the wives manage now that I'm I'm in the sort of in the, in the position of parenting. I just can't imagine doing what they did. Now, now your your baby's quite young, right? You didn't have any children when you were over in Afghanistan. No, I did not. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, um, I've got a six-month-old baby, so no more trips oh, okay. to Afghanistan for me for a while. Um, That's the fun age when they're they're six to ten months old. I I, uh, I look back on that. My son's now twenty-two, so you know yeah. I probably am looking through rose-colored glasses. But I I no, love that right. that stretch. You know, from the six uh, six months to a year was part of my favorite time. I thought. Yeah, it's great. Um, it, it's it's a wonderful time, and it's also you know it's good to have two parents in the house because there's yeah. <laughs> otherwise you end up with no time. And so I don't know how these how how they these women manage you know worrying about uh, their husbands never coming back uh, or dealing with the injuries like Caleb had with you know one two small kids. Uh, Tina was pregnant when Hutch was over um, mm. in in the mission in Kunduz, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine doing what they did. And I, I find that so impressive. Yeah. They, uh, the women in the book that again, that was, you know, uh, one of the better parts of the books because, you know, not only are you getting the story of the soldiers, you're getting their families back home. And, you know, the, the women I thought were really strong in this and it, your, your heart goes out to some of the guys who, who, end up getting killed because you know most of the american public we see just the aftermath uh, you might see a picture of a funeral where somebody's getting a folded flag but the, you know there, there's a lot more to that and the family's yeah. there i mean i know that for example alexandra mcclintock who's mcclintock whose husband was killed in marja i mean i know that she hasn't um she hasn't read the book she hasn't read i mean as i was writing i before publication obviously sent the chapters over to the people that were in it so that they had a chance to, to correct anything that was inaccurate or weigh in and she didn't read them because i mean five, five years on it's still such a such an awful awful thing to have gone through um you know and i think people when they talk about oh well we're only losing you know 10 us soldiers a year or 20 i mean you know what are we losing them for and do we really consider the impact of the, of the loss of just a single soldier really and, and that's one of the things that i wanted to convey um convey in the book right and uh you know speaking in general terms is do you think that journalism is changing the way wars are covered nowadays i mean because we live in that era you know back in world war Two, and even in vietnam it was like you know so in far in the distance and you'd have to rely on newspapers back in world war ii or you know the radio and you'd get reports that were maybe a day or two old then in vietnam it started coming into our you know living rooms at night but today i mean we're seeing stuff as it unfolds and is is the way is journalism changing the way we look at wars now I think that it's really, I think it's more the other way around. Um, I think that in, in earlier years in Afghanistan and, and in Iraq, obviously, uh, you had journalists embedding with a range of different troops for uh, a length of time that gave them a chance to really see 
or understand what was going on uh, since 2015, when the Afghan war was, when there was this effort to put the Afghan war out of the public, uh, you know, journalists don't really get to embed with U.S. forces, and the very few embeds that are granted are granted only to, you know, a couple of D.C. journalists who haven't got a lot of um, uh, in-depth understanding experience in Afghanistan and they don't get a lot of time uh to see to to spend with these troops so you know you don't really learn a lot just by being there for two days or so or three days uh and so I think that really makes it difficult for journalists to really cover uh what what the war is like now um and uh yeah and and so it has unfortunately sort of faded out of the public's mind yeah, that's it's it's very true. I mean, you know, we see it every day here in the states. But you know, the the book, and and again to our listeners out there, we're talking with Jessanati. She wrote the book um, Eagle Down, the the last um, special forces fighting in the forever war. And and really, I mean, after reading the book, this should be requ- required reading. I think for our government leaders and military war colleges because it shows what can happen and it can happen quite easily when we strip our uh special operations forces or anyone involved in that kind of uh you know situation of their assets and you know we're putting their lives in harm's way and I, i i can't tell you uh how much i thought i was impressed with your work in this and and uh, I thought it was a fantastic book. And like I said, at times it was very um, uplifting. And at other times it was very uh, concerning, I guess. Uh, in uh, you know, uh, when we see what our guys are going through on a daily basis. And I think you captured that. And uh, our hats are off to you. And we, you know, encourage all of our readers, our, all of our listeners to... Uh, Definitely check out the book. It's available on Amazon.com. And uh, it's also available, I believe, off of your website, correct? Yeah, there's um, there's a list of sellers um, from the publisher's website from Hachette. Um, and so uh, pretty much all, all um, book sellers should be able to get a copy if you don't want to go down the Amazon route. Great. And uh, yeah, we, we don't want to take up too much more of your time. I know you have a young baby at home and you're, you're, is your husband a journalist as well? Absolutely not. <laughs> I would never date another journalist. <laughs> no, he's, um, he's in the foreign service, so. Oh, okay. okay. He's, he's currently handling the baby. Yeah, well, there you go, and that's uh, that. That is a diplomatic cure in itself. So. But yes. This is him screaming. I hope, but I can hear him from here. Yeah. Well, I won't keep, I won't keep you any longer. Uh, Thanks for joining us this evening on your time and this morning on our time. But uh, we really appreciate your insight. You taking the time to talk with us here at Soft Rep Radio. Um, again, we, we definitely encourage our readers and our listeners out there to, to check out the book. It's well worth it. But before Thank we go, you. oh, you're quite welcome here. Anytime. Uh, and is there anything before we go? Uh, is there anything that on the agenda for you? Are you working on something new? No, um, I'm going back to my job covering uh, national security at the Wall Street Journal um, starting in March. And, um, and we'll see. We'll go from there. 
Oh, excellent. So that means you'll be probably back in the States by then? Yeah. Yeah. I'm heading back next week. Excellent. Well, I know it must be tough leaving Africa because it's such a beautiful place, but uh, we We're wish very you all the <laughs> yeah, we wish you all the best in that. And again, thank you for taking the time with us today. But thank before you. we, okay, before we go, I just wanted to read a quick note from our editors here. If you want to get Soft Rep on your phone, download our free mobile app and get easy access to our articles, podcasts, and gear reviews, all perfectly formatted to your device. Please subscribe to SoftRep.com to get access to all our library of eBooks and our exclusive Team Room content. Uh, forums and available on all your Apple and Android devices. Jess, thanks again for taking the time with us today. We really appreciate it and uh, all the best to you in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It was our pleasure. All right, that's it for us here at Soft Rep Radio. We'll be back with another podcast real soon. Until then, don't turn that dial, Soft Rep Radio, on time on target. been listening to soft rep radio does money stress you out let facet flip your financial chaos into clarity finding facet immediately put us at ease facet's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order that makes us facet for life now i guess (laughs) visit facet.com f-a-c-e-t.com to learn more this ad is sponsored by facet facet wealth is an sec registered investment advisor this is not an offer to buy or sell securities nor is an investment legal or tax advice these testimonials are from current facet members who are not compensated all opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free... Hi, I'm Gabby Reese. Join me and my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, on our journey with Laird Superfood. From our kitchen to yours, we've crafted delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and so much more using high-quality functional ingredients. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 for 20% off your first order.